You're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is the show for lawyers and law firm leaders. I'm your host, Ab. In each episode, I talk with technologists, key players, and experts to help you navigate the changing landscape that is the legal profession. If you're looking for strategies, learn about trending topics, and get updates from the experts, then this is the place for you. Let's get to it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Steve Giassi. Steve is the CEO of Legaler and Legaler Aid, president of the Australian Legal Tech Association, host of the Legal Meets podcast, and a serial entrepreneur. Quite a lot he's been up to recently, and I'm sure we'll dig into a lot of that today. Welcome, Steve. Thanks for having me. How are you? Very good, thank you. And thanks for joining me from Australia. It looks very nice and sunny where you are. Yeah, I'm sitting across the road from Bondi Beach, so it's not a bad place to be hanging out. <laughs> lucky, lucky you. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be there in a few months, so I'm looking forward to the sunshine. Uh, awesome. Perfect. So I, I suppose you have quite a rich background in how you got into legal. So I think that's a good good place to start as any. So how did you get into the legal profession? And then we can go into what you're doing at the moment. It's definitely the last place I imagined myself. And if probably uh, someone had asked me, that I, you know, uh, hinted at me ending up in this profession, I'd probably think maybe I was going to jail or something ominous. But as it turns out, it, it was mostly technology driven. But I've, I've had, a, I guess, as you mentioned, a varying background in, in commercial pursuits. But I started off wanting to be a tennis player. So I came from a family of professional athletes. My father was the captain of the, Austra- uh, the Iranian national soccer team and came to play for Australia. So that's how we ended up here as an immigrant. And again, I grew up uh, watching him in his various pursuits. So surrounded by entrepreneurial endeavors and that helped me grow up in business so while my friends are probably running around the you know playground or or school holidays you know hanging out the beach I was working in our retail stores so that was really where I kind of cut my teeth and as I grew up into you know managing people and running businesses that was really the best way I guess uh, as baptism by fire really to learn all about how to run a commercial business. And, and from there, I guess, uh, took the reins and, and developed a, a series of different businesses in hospitality, merchandising. And really in terms of the technology aspect, we had an opportunity to, to be the first company in Australia to, to have voice over IP technology. And that was really where we got into more of the technology side of things, where we actually started a, a telco company. And my brother and uh, you know, he expanded on that business, but really it started bringing different opportunities in front of us. And from there, we started building platforms. That's really where I guess the link to the legal industry started, where we were starting to see this shift into the digital age and, you know, lawyers were maybe getting left behind and a lot of them that were approaching us uh, how to get leads, how to be seen more on blogs and SEO, really how, how do they keep up in this modern world. And and we also were using a lot of lawyers in our own experiences for, for the businesses, for startups. And so I guess it was, a, it was a combination of all that where we started to see, get more insights into the legal industry and what was missing. And so Legaler was, was born out of that. And that's, I guess, how we ended up in the legal profession. And Legaler was... In 20, it was founded in 2017. In April 2017, we launched the first product to the, to the public. So it was founded a little bit before that, but essentially, we wanted to start somewhere. The broader vision was always that uh, we could see that a technology layer would connect lawyers and clients, mm. and that's something that has taken on different iterations. You know, from document automation platforms and marketplaces, but essentially, we'd also seen why that hadn't really gotten tri- uh, critical traction. So we started with a communication tool that was really lightweight in your browser, 
that essentially just connected lawyers and clients for meetings. And that's what cross jurisdictional had network effects built into it. So we really started somewhere there we could build on. And that's what we entered the market with. And so that's in over 80 countries now. I think we've just passed about 1,500 law firms. And so that's really where we, we want to expand on. And, and, and I'll explain obviously later, but blockchain technology has a big, big influence on that now. Wow. Awesome. And what was the, who is your client? Is it the, the sort of solo practitioners or the sort of mid to large law firms or anyone and everyone? There is a really wide variety of users from law students to, you know, people that are, I guess, periphery to the legal industry. But basically our focus is small to, you know, medium practitioners like, yeah, solos. The ones that can really dive into a new tool without worrying about long sales cycles and, you know, the IT department. So going back to the growth factor, we really wanted to kind of, um, and, and I think the disruption really does start from that part of the market. The higher end of the market is obviously more entrenched in, in certain systems and it's harder to kind of break them out of how they're currently working. But essentially, we want technology to kind of bring people together to create the largest provider of legal services and, and you know, some type of uberization, I guess you could call it. But that's happening at the lower levels and then obviously working its way up. So definitely our target market is the type of users that use Clio and those types of tools, you know, like small, really nimble apps plugged together to kind of create this, you know, law firm of the future. Okay, so your aim and I think you kind of touched on that is to essentially be the platform right so you can give people a foundation to be able to communicate in a safe secure way in a flexible way and then have integrations with these other tools and then sort of build from there is that about is that kind of right that's yeah and yeah and going back to the broader vision once upon a time it was to be somewhat of an intermediary to grow into that role and the fascinating part about blockchain technology is that it puts every intermediary at, at risk yeah. Yeah. you're not providing a certain type of value, you can be easily bypassed. So more broadly speaking, we're now making sure that we build an infrastructure that can facilitate that, but without us being the intermediary. So again, we'll touch on that more as we go. We certainly will. Okay. And before we do actually talk about blockchain a bit more, tell me a bit more about Legaler Aid. I sort of came across that. It sounds like a really cool concept actually, and it's sort of focused on the charitable side of things, right? And it runs on smart contracts over a blockchain. And we can touch on all of those words later, I'm sure. But, yeah. <laughs> but well, it's, it's around sort of access to social justice. Yeah, that's 100% it. And there's some, you know, I guess, scary high-level numbers. According to the United Nations, you've got over 4 billion people that live outside of access to justice. You know, more recently, The Hague has just released figures that it's, you know, pointing more towards over 6 billion people live outside of that number. And, you know, you just go look at the United States. So according to the American Bar Association itself, 80% of people, so that's four out of five people that have a legal issue, actually are unable to access the legal system. So we've got a, a really big issue there and a social justice issue and it affects the quality of everyone's life. So I know how much I've spent personally and it's part of it's obviously commercial to business, but on legal fees, I would rather have legal insurance than health insurance at this point in my life. But so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big expense and it's a, obviously a system that's been quite entrenched in our old model. And so that's hopefully starting to change. But legal aid is really something that can hopefully put a dent in that number and, and, and drive broader access to justice across the board. How it kind of came to be, again, it was born through our activities in, in Legala and our learnings, but one of our companies uh, using Legala uh, based in Sydney is the Salvation Army's law firm called Salvos Legal. And I got quite familiar with their, their model and Luke Geary, their founder, who again created probably the world's first social enterprise law firm. And what I came to see was that, you know, they were doing an incredible job out of one law firm raising 
I think it was in, in about five years, they raised about $60 million of profit that all, it's not a partnership model. It's a, it's kind of a flat model where the, the lawyers will be on salaries, but essentially after they pay the, the bills to keep the lights on and, you know, cover the admin costs, all of that profit goes next door into a non-for-profit and essentially is serving that person that walks in off the street who has most of the times, as Luke described, zero possessions that literally a bag of you know clothes in, in their possession and maybe a mobile phone or something to that degree. But essentially these are people that are, you know, cast out of the system at a disadvantage and getting legal services for free. So I saw that. And again, going back to this broader access to justice problem, I said, if one law firm is having such an impact, well, what if this could be a broader, more scalable model using technology? And at the same time, I was, you know, well and truly down the blockchain rabbit hole, more so interested in DAOs and, and what you know, smart contracts could do to automate companies. And a lot of the attention from Christoph Jensch, who created the, the actual first DAO that was built in Ethereum, yep. basically a decentralized hedge fund. He really shifted his focus after you know, the, the, the infamous hack. He shifted his focus to charity DAOs. And at the crossroads of you know, a charity DAO and this you know, new type of law firm, Legal Aid was born really as a vision to create you know, almost like a Tom's Shoes for legal. Like Tom's Shoes mm-hmm. let someone buy a pair of shoes and then reciprocate that by having someone in Africa get a pair of yeah, shoes yeah. for free. Yeah, big fan of Tom's Shoes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they have a great model. And actually, they they yeah, and they do a lot of good. Just I think the important thing there is right. People forget it's it's great to have those ambitions, but you need some sort of a commercial thing behind it, and this allows you to be able to do both of those things. And you know, I think Tom's a good example, and he speaks quite openly about that. Just being able to say, look, you want to buy these shoes, and people are willing to give to charity, but what if you can just charge them a bit higher? And then you can use that money or part of that money at least to then do, you know, social good somewhere else. Yeah, well, that, that's, I think that there's a shift also in philanthropy and also mm-hmm. in being more commercial about doing good. There's a lot of stigma attached to these organizations that, that do get money, whether it's through donations or through mm-hmm. charity, that they can't operate as a normal business. And what happens is you've got these, you know, more famously in Australia just recently, Charlie Teo, who's a famous brain surgeon, pulled out of his own cancer charity because he was fed up with the, you know, it was around, it was over 90% admin costs. Wow. So you know, they're wondering what the impact is of that, you know, a few percent that goes somewhere, and but people can't track that. So going back to the legal aid, the idea is that, well, what if you could create an entity that is more transparent, is more accountable, and is basically a vehicle, and this is what charities should be, to, to push funds and value to the right place. So essentially the first product that we have as part of this you know, legal aid platform is a social justice crowdfunding platform that works through tax deductible donations going towards social justice cases. And so the idea there is that if you have a case that can actually be put forward by a community legal center, they can then act as a clearinghouse because they're essentially vetting cases all the time. They just don't have all the resources and the means. So what happens there is that these cases can be put in the platform. Law firms can actually tender for the work. So you have a, a real world fixed price on what you know is going to be delivered and, and how much that's going to cost. And then from there, the public can go, okay, so I now know where my funds are going. And now I, I can actually track that through blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies to actually see where those funds are from donor to recipient. And then hopefully that gives more confidence. And then they're also more tied in both emotionally and also to the outcome of the case because you can actually follow that all the way to hopefully a positive outcome for that uh, client. And from there, hopefully, again, that sets a new standard. So again, these technologies are quite new. So part of how we're positioned as just legal as a company is that we're building the blockchain infrastructure for the future of legal services. So 
that can take a few different guises, but essentially it's, if you think of it like an ecosystem play, like an Apple, yeah. you want to have an app, an app store, well, you have to have all the tools that help you build those apps and the operating system to do that. So we're yeah. kind of building all of that stuff. Yeah, that's really cool. And I think that's probably a good segue to start talking about blockchain. And I want to preface this conversation because obviously it's a very popular term and you know, you recently released the, I think it's the ebook called Blockchain for Lawyer, which I, I read, read through. It's a 36 page ebook. And I think one of the statistics I saw early on is that it drew over 1.7 million views in under two weeks, which is just incredible. And it's obviously very niche, right? Blockchain for lawyers. It's not exactly the, the sexiest thing for a non-lawyer or someone who's not interested in legal. But I think it gives it gives precedent to how much interest there is in in that space and others. And you know, before we start talking about that, I do want to just preface the conversation by saying uh, there's something called some I think a saying attributed to Roy Amara, which says that we tend to overestimate the impact of technology in the short run and underestimate the effect in in the long run. And I think blockchain and AI and other technologies like that are very, very good examples of that, right? People think they will solve all of their problems immediately. Probably won't, frankly. But I think if you think about what's to come in the next 5, 10, 15 years, then certainly I think the approach of having the foundations laid out, as as you alluded to just now, it makes a big difference. But before we get the foundations, I think people need to understand what blockchain means as there's certainly a lot of mystery. So yeah, I'll, I'll hand over to you and you can give a high-level view of what that means. Yeah, no, I think you hit it on the head because Amara's law is the best way to describe where we're at. And, you know, if you look at Gartner's uh, hype cycle, we've come out of the peak of inflated expectations and, and well and truly uh, into the trough of disillusionment, if you, if, you, if you go by what they're saying. But I think yep. <laughs> what was really good about this whole, you know, the, the ebook kind of went you know, viral. Like, I think it was just through Christmas and you know, a lot of people had a holiday reading time, I guess. And so what was great was all the people reaching out afterwards to actually say, hey, I'm working on this project. Hey, I'm writing my PhD. And I think part of the attraction, as you mentioned, you know, legal industry might be niche in the sense of, of blockchain, but there's a misnomer, smart contracts, which, you know, smart contracts, you can essentially say they're not contracts yeah. or, or that's <laughs> that can be quite, quite dumb. But as a lawyer, you know, your core commodity is, is a contract. So when you hear that term, obviously you want to know what's going on. Yeah. And so I think that, and again, going back to Amara's law, what, what's the broader shift that's happening here? Because blockchain, you could say, to, again, going, going back to what's boring, it could be a boring net network term, right? It's something in the background that really we don't talk too much in our daily lives about network protocols in general conversation. So... <laughs> But we are talking about blockchain. So it's a bit like Wi-Fi. I just, you know, right now I don't talk about, you know, <laughs> you know all, the, all the different terms associated with that technology and how the, the, the internet is, you know, my, my phone's came to the internet. I just want it to work. So we're at an early stage where people are still working it out. And so I think the biggest shift that's happening is this shift in trust and blockchain facilitates that. So essentially, you could just look at blockchain as a ledger that's you know hosted by many computers, and you can only add new information to it. So you only append information. Going back and changing information is really difficult, but it is possible. But when you want to add something new to this database, everyone in the network has to agree on what the truth is, and then you have truth by consensus. So it's just another way of coming to the truth and then recording that truth. And basically, having this decentralized nature means that no one person is in charge of it and makes it really censorship-proof, global, and these are all some of the benefits. But 
going back to the real problem it solved and what the first use of this technology was, is for basically cryptocurrency and the, the famous Satoshi Nakamoto white paper in 2008 leading to the actual network being released in 2009 solved one key problem and that was the double spending problem. So anyone that had tried to create cryptocurrency or any type of digital currency in the past had an issue where that could be replicated and you had this ubiquitous nature of, of digital assets mm-hmm that really made it difficult to have me, you know, hold a $20 note and then digitally spend it somewhere else without being able to kind of really spend that many, many times. So Satoshi's white paper solved the double spending problem. But the gift that that gave us was that we now had uh, digital scarcity for the first time. So you could have a, a network that kept track of, you know, in this case, transactions and made sure that I couldn't spend that $20 twice. And so now we have this new infrastructure and you can call it, the, you know, many different things, you've got internet of value, internet of trust. But the biggest shift that that's creating is now we have a new way to actually manage trust. So in the past, we went from localized trust. So we were living in you know tribes, we had kinship, family, all these different trust technologies that we use to actually you know interact with each other and you could argue that you know trust is one of the you know the the most important societal you know factors and you know in organizing how we operate and how we do many things in our life so then the next leap was to institutional trust as society scale and i often show you know one of the clay tablets on mesopotamia when i'm presenting about you know blockchain because it really highlights how society first wanted to scale and we had to kind of memorialize our relationships and keep track of it. And it was just carved into these clay tablets. And they were quite a fascinating technology. They had, you know, like rows and columns and a date system and all these things. But essentially, you just let a third party be involved and let us create a more scalable way of trusting each other. So from there, we relied on institutions, companies, you know, even religion brought people together in these, you know, organized institutions. And so these different ways of bringing trust together then now have moved to distributed trust. And so now that we have this new type of uh, network that can actually have trust by consensus across a broad number of different people and, and actors, we no longer need to trust each other independently. We can actually you know, work in a peer-to-peer fashion, whether it's sending each other cryptocurrencies, whether it's signing a contract. So that's really the biggest shift. And that's what I think if, if you go back to you know, what's happening and, and, you know, will Amara's law, let that be revealed down the track? Well, you have this new layer and this new infrastructure of, of trust and a new way of trusting each other. And I think that's what's really important here. And, you know, people will get lost in the hype cycles and the, the prices of cryptocurrencies and whatever else. But essentially, they're, they're really short-term, you know, uh, shiny objects. And what's really fascinating is that we have a new type of trust in society and a new way of organizing society that can be done through what essentially is a digital means, but we live really in a digital world right now. You know, the internet's the new supply chain and so it affects a lot of aspects of our life. Yeah, and I think when people think about the blockchain, it's one of those things that often gets confused with cryptocurrencies. They're two separate things and they can, you know, all all the cryptocurrencies are based on the blockchain they don't have to be the only thing that's based on the blockchain. And there's a lot of different use cases for this. And I think you went, I think the key thing about the blockchain is the trust aspect. All the technical aspects are interesting for some people, but I really liked your analogy, right? You don't need to know how the internet works in order to use the internet. And very few people even now, and that's been around for a couple of decades now, very few people understand exactly how the internet works yet a lot of people around the world use the internet every single day for all sorts of things. And I think eventually, you know, 
technologies like the blockchain will be will get there and it's more important to understand okay why should it why should it be important what kind of use cases there are and you know you already touched on one from the the pro bono side of things and i think in the in the ebook itself you you have a quite a nice graphic that shows some of the potential use cases for blockchain and i think there some of them already exist and especially in more rural countries and often when you talk about blockchain and use cases, Africa gets brought up and a lot of places like that where people don't have access to things like banks, right? You, a lot of people living in some of those countries in Africa do not get access to banks. That means they can't get a mortgage. They can't do all sorts of other transactions that we take for granted in the Western world. You can do that with blockchain because you have this trust element. It does not need to be put into an entity like a bank. You can just actually have trust in a community and going back to your stone tablet days, Right, that's a way of doing that. Just keep an account of, you know, who owns what and what the path of movement of those goods or items might be. Yeah. Well, when we created the internet, we didn't create a protocol for money, so we created yeah. over time all these other protocols. So you got, you know, we spoke about voice over yeah. IP. We created all these different means of being able to do things over the internet, but the mm. one that we hadn't cracked was how to do that. So that core technology we created to to create money as a protocol now, because we can actually send money. As a message, and that's why when you hear these use cases about banking in Africa, it's because all you do need is a mobile phone now, and you're essentially tapped into the financial network. Because mm. a bank structure is quite elaborate, and you know there's like towns and villages and things in, in you know in remote areas that really can't get access to any of these services. So, creating it now as a protocol that can be sent over the internet is really fascinating, and that's where. I really like the way Natalie Smolensky, she's a PhD anthropologist and also in the blockchain space. So she really does a great job of describing these core tenants and, and these you know, technologies through history. But we've got a new shared memory system for society. And I think that's the nicest way to kind of describe it because in the past, a lot of society has been controlled by centralized authorities, whether it's you know the writing of history, um, yeah. all, all types of things. Have been, but now we have a way to give that back to the people because it's, it's an open network. It's not it's censorship proof. Anyone can participate. Mm-hmm. Anyone can you know open their phone in Africa and now be banked, and they can also. And you know we're talking about these broader numbers where access to justice. I think it's still about over half the population of the world really doesn't really have banking internet so there's a lot of these problems to be solved and i think it's going to be on an exponential curve because the foundation for all that's already been laid so yeah and what what do you think is or why why should lawyers or anyone in the legal space why should they care about this well the biggest thing is again it does go back to that element of trust but the degree to which people trust each other and how those many those trusted relationships are managed is often intermediated by a lawyer so when you have such a shift in, in where trust sits, then the lawyer's role obviously changes. And going back to a smart contract, you know, a smart contract is basically self-executing code that's not in the control of any one person. So you have you know, this new type of binding people together in relationships, and that can be commercial, it could be any type of you know, value exchange or basically any type of promise. So essentially they're, they're automated promises. And so that's really fascinating because for a lawyer, then all these questions arise about jurisdiction, who's responsible for, you know, something going wrong, where does dispute get resolved? And so it raises so many questions. And again, it could be the first time in 5,000 years that the nature of, of these relationships and contracts have kind of changed. So I think that's why lawyers need to be paying attention. But also while that's happening, you've got, you know, again, all these new 
areas of business that lawyers have to service. So you've got now you've got blockchain lawyers, you've got cryptocurrency, fundraising, you know, whether you want to call it ICOs or security tokens, whichever subset. You have digital assets now that lawyers need to know a lot about. Like what is the nature of these assets, how they're classified, which jurisdictions do they fall into, which jurisdictions are favorable, all kinds of things. So I think it, it does affect, again, every part of the lawyer's role. But more importantly, again, going back to the groundbreaking shift that's already occurred is that you have this new way of actually you know, making people responsible to each other and you have these smart contracts that can be legally binding. So you have smart legal contracts mm. and these can be done in actual language and can you know, incorporate internet of things. So you have like a think of it, the smart aspect of the smart contract term as giving it intelligence through outside inputs. And then it becomes important where those inputs come from, how trusted they are, yeah. contracts self-executing, and you have a lot of assets at risk. You know, how can you trust those parties if, the, if these contracts are trustless? There's a lot of questions that are still new. There's a really cool project called Sagewise, which a former lawyer, a recovering lawyer, Amy Wan, is working on it. And basically, it gives you a chance to, to wrap basically an SDK, but to wrap a technology layer around a smart contract to say, you know what, if something does go wrong, the parties can push a pause button, can push it to a dispute resolution of their choice in terms of it could be a, a jurisdiction that they've decided on. So these technologies are, you know, they, they sound pretty you know, nascent and, and immature, and, but there's a lot of uh, people working on these problems. So there's, there's a lot happening that's going to accelerate the adoption of these technologies. Mm, I think you're quite right. And even though a lot of these things probably won't happen for a few years, there will still be smaller changes that are just as important. You know, if you, and there's solutions that exist now that assist with pretty straightforward services, legal services such as, you know, custody or having simple, con, uh, simple contracts or actually tracking ownership of assets is a very, very important thing that already happens way better using something like blockchain because you can actually track a deed of a property or, of actually of diamonds or anything it might be from inception all the way through to where it is. And it can't be, well, it's very difficult to, to amend it, right? Not that it can't be amended, but it's very difficult to do so. And those are all things that lawyers should be aware of having things like signatures and, and things of that nature as well. And it's basically a fundamental shift in technology. And I think as a lawyer, it's almost their duty to be aware of what's happening because they need to be prepared before it becomes commonplace. And yeah, yeah, the interesting thing you touched upon is also being aware of jurisdictions. Much like any other law, there will be certain jurisdictions, certain countries, which are already more open to this kind of technology right now versus those where they're pushing because more obviously one of the things that will come into play and we've seen that with ICOs is regulation or lack thereof in some cases, right? So as a lawyer, you need to be aware of that from a business perspective. And if you need to be able to say, okay, I can become a blockchain lawyer or I can actually be a lawyer who's focused on ICOs and, you know, in addition to other kind of financial assets, that will be a huge competitive advantage if you're on top of things, right? If you're already learning about this, when your clients come to you, that may be a little bit too late compared to the lawyer across the road. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of lawyers, you know, that position themselves as blockchain lawyers. Mm -hmm. And we've got, you know, a large team of advisors that are very well-versed in both the legal world and, and in blockchain. And, yeah. you know, some of those have a technology background. So it really... You know, if you can verse yourself in, in these things early, you really are, you know, well-placed to kind of 
capture a lot of that market. Mm. And so, you know, all those examples that you just mentioned about blockchain being useful, they all go back to that digital scarcity being created, really. If you're tracking a property, well, you know, now you can track something on on a ledger because you've been able to create one of that in a digital sense. And whether it's a person signing it, well, you know, Legal itself is working on Legal ID, which will be one of the first tools we release. That's going and giving somebody, a legal professional, even a client, mm. one local identity. Because again, because you can actually create a representation of something digitally that's unique on a blockchain, you can assign that to a person. The internet was created from machines to talk to each other, not for humans. Yeah. So now we need to basically put ourselves into the pipeline. So we're doing that through public and, and private key cryptography, which helps. Mm-hmm. But if I have access to you know my account through my private key, that identity I can actually use to sign transactions. I can sign a signature and, and someone can know that that's me because it's being attested to by various different third parties outside of myself. So that's really where the start of all these you know, exciting things on blockchain happen. You need to create identity first. Yeah. And then that's, Really, a lot of people working on that in different areas, but we're working on it for the legal industry to, to give lawyers, especially, uh, one identity across the internet. So, if you think about it, if you're a Lyft driver, yeah. you want to go on Uber, you're a zero. All your reviews are tied to you know one siloed centralized platform. But if you can have a global identity that's decentralized and can sit across these different types of siloed you know platforms, then you could have one identity that has full provenance over your your law degree, you can mm. get that issue as a digital certificate from a, from a law school. You could then have your practicing certificate, all these things put on a blockchain that are more beneficial and trusted in that sense. Yeah. And I chuckled there as you were saying that because I know you're a huge fan of suits from your LinkedIn profile. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that's one of the problems we're solving. So if, right. if, you know, in that episode where they're shuffling through the, the archives at Harvard trying to find his law degree, well, if you can actually issue that as a digital representation in the first place and hash it to a blockchain or do it as a non-fungible token, so there is one type of you know certificate that's been issued that you can reference, well, then you, you can't go and replicate that, right? And that helps in so many ways. If you're a lawyer and you move overseas into a new jurisdiction, getting a transcripts from an old you know, university takes time and yeah. money, all those types of things, right? So, yeah, so this is where... Again, a lot of people go and get caught up in the case, it's all hype and nothing's happening. But this really, as a base infrastructure, benefits most things because we live in this digital age and we've had this total, you know, as a ubiquity. So as a lawyer, wouldn't you rather have one version of a document and everyone works to that one final version? And if there's a dispute in the future, you can reference that, you know, wouldn't you rather have one copy of all the clauses in one place? So if someone does go and do something funny, uh, you can kind of reference that as well. Yeah. So really, you know, I can't, you know, say enough how much this is going to affect the legal industry, but it is early days, you know, and, and just one of the final points where you were talking about the adoption, you know, uh, and the use cases and the real world use cases, uh, HSBC, you know, the other week just uh, came out and said they processed $250 million of transactions on a blockchain. Mm-hmm. You know, there's rumors now about WhatsApp releasing remittance payments. That's through a stable point. That could be 2.5 billion people overnight. Yeah. And so it's not that far away. Yeah. And I mean, it's an interesting thing. And, you know, you hear all of the good things, you hear all the hype. And I think one of the things that will need to be figured out, certainly when it comes to most of the blockchains is going to be the speed, right? Because that that's the thing that's holding it back in some cases. And the transaction speed on a blockchain is nowhere close to what you might get in, in some cases, right? Depending on the kind of blockchain you're using. 
Yeah, that, it's funny because, you know, I see a lot of conversations, especially online, about mostly comparisons to the speed of blockchains to payment networks. Mm-hmm. So that's obviously quite a common thing. You know, you've got Bitcoin without second layer solutions like Lightning, right. the, the, the main network you're talking about, seven transactions per, per second. And then, you know, they're comparing that to things like Visa and MasterCard. They're doing 40,000 and saying it'll never be a global payment network. The difference is they're comparing the wrong level of technology. So, you know, MasterCard and Visa are like maybe five levels up, right? Mm. But when you go one level up on a blockchain, you can do millions of transactions per yeah. second. So that's, that ties into one of the reasons why Legal is actually building. So uh, we'll be later on this year launching a public network for the legal industry. Mm-hmm. So, and that one of the reasons is scalability. So Ethereum is great as a trusted name, a, a backbone for decentralization and, and having this blockchain network. Mm-hmm. But to build scalable applications that need to operate, you know, like a Facebook or, or whatever else for the legal industry in, in terms of you know, the speed of transactions, it's quite limiting. Yeah. So what we're doing is we're creating a parallel network that leverages security and the economic security that a platform like Ethereum offers because it's got over 20,000 nodes that are very decentralized, but it's working on, on proof of work and it's moving to proof of stake, which is faster, mm. but it's just slow and expensive. And to yep. create an application that's for the legal industry, you're competing with all these other transactions and paying gas fees for someone that might be you know, sending $5 million across the, you know, the world and you're trying to just update your profile in an app yeah. and you compete against the same kind of transaction. Yeah. What we're aiming to do is provide a new operating system, you could call it, that smart contracts can run on, that applications can run on, dedicated for the legal industry. And that solves a few problems. It solves the scalability problem because you can have a proof of stake network that doesn't have to provide the same economic securities because you have Ethereum in the background. Mm-hmm. And then have you know things that can actually, in the business logic, that can be geared for applications for the legal industry. So you can create private smart contracts through zero knowledge uh, technology, all those things that, you know, would take a long time for these big, larger public networks to actually implement. And so essentially what we're doing is we're creating a new public infrastructure for the legal industry and that'll be launched later uh, this year. That's really so cool. What I'm really excited about is that we've, we've solved a couple of problems that, you know, the, the ICOs really create some perverse incentives. Mm-hmm. We're actually launching our network without an ICO and without a pre-mine. So there's no tokens created day one. It actually mm-hmm. starts with zero tokens and it's an emissions model. So over time, the tokens are generated a bit like right. in but yeah. there's no mining. So it's just a schedule that, you know, incentivizes people to actually come into the network early days, become validators. Mm-hmm. And then time earn those tokens so what that means is that there's no company like legal are running away with tokens there's no nice. investors buying tokens yeah. it's just a lot more organic and the product our technology becomes more the focus as opposed to a lot of these companies i think the ico was their company you know, right, that's right. Just yeah. raising funds from the public and so that's what i'm really excited about and that's that's coming uh shortly so it's all fun uh, that's cool yeah i'll be keeping an eye on that and i know there's a few others certainly in australia and elsewhere which aren't public blockchains but there's certainly private ones and the australian national blockchain being one of them right yeah that's again what's fascinating is that you know australia hopefully could be leading the way in a lot yeah. of in a lot of respects because the australian national blockchain is it's a, it's a consortium-led blockchain but you've got hsf which is herbert smith three hills yeah. um, kwm i think as well right yeah yeah and then they've all kind of combined mm. with uh, data 61 which is part of the, the national government's scientific body and then you've got mm. ibm obviously wrapped around that so that's great because they're creating something that you know law firms will very easily you know acclimatize to so it's it's quite interesting and i think in a very short period of time again they're running lots of proof of concepts i think mm. by next year they're trying to go a little bit more 
again, being in the legal industry, I think it took two and a half years to get this approved. And now they're trying to you know, go very slow and steady to make sure that the, that the risk aversion is obviously looked after and, and they don't hit too many stumbling blocks. But Natasha Bleicher there, she's based in Perth, but she's doing an amazing job. And it was really, I think, her brainchild. So I think more and more law firms are going to join. There's going to be a fear of missing out, right? So they want to be at least in the conversation before they start doing any uh, types of transactions. But I think that's going to create a real groundswell for the legal industry. Yeah. And I think, I mean, there's already many global blockchain consortium and I think there's also the global legal blockchain consortium. So there's, there's plenty of resources and it's growing exponentially every day on what blockchain is, how people can utilize it, you know, broken out by industries, which is really cool. Yeah, I think that's another, you know, that also speaks to the interest again. Law firms have joined, technology companies have joined. So David Fisher's done a great job. They've got Integra Ledger, which again is another permission blockchain. So there's over 150 companies I think have joined and Legal is a member as well. And, and so they had a, a great meetup before. I think it was a second annual uh, gathering before Iltacon last year. And that was awesome. All the, again, the products that people have worked on, open law presented, and you've got all these different you know, smart contract technologies, Contract Express, so Thomson Reuters yeah. integrating with blockchain. So very cool to see all this stuff coming to light. Mm, that's really cool. And actually, one of the things you mentioned, which could be a good segue to the, to the final point I want to cover, which is the Australian legal scene, right? So Australia already seems like leading the way when it comes to blockchain and legal in some ways. And you're the president of the Australian Legal Tech Association. So what do you think it is about, and actually maybe it's a good way, good to set the stage. Uh, I know there's a lot of companies, tech companies that are founded or run in Australia now when, when it comes to legal. So what do you think is the appeal there, considering that you guys are quite far away, <laughs> geographically speaking? And how do you see that changing, that landscape changing over the coming years or so? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I got asked in the early days about, you know, what has Australia done in, you know, in innovation and tech and legal tech especially? And, you know, there was the legal tech book that got released last year, which I was fortunate mm. uh, to get asked to write a chapter on this market in Australia and New Zealand. And it was interesting for me to kind of pull back the layers and actually go back and just see what, you know, had happened. And, you know, in just in general innovation, you know, we created Wi-Fi through CSIRO, <laughs> which is working on the Australian National Blockchain. Yeah. And, you know, Google Maps is yeah. created here in Australia. So there are all these cool innovations, but more specifically to legal, like we've also done a few things that are really innovative. First, you know, public companies to kind of go live legal in, in, in law firms. And then also a Christian Beck who founded Leap Legal. That's been around. I mean, it was originally written in, in Mac and this is going back over 20 years ago. Right. The office for legal and they've grown wildly and they've got InfoTrack, which um, I think they raised like $300 million basically in, in, in debt funding. So, you know, that could be you could say the biggest round. I think LegalZoom raised $200 million. So, yeah. So that's maybe one of the most successful legal tech funding rounds as well. So there's been a lot happening here and, and you know, they were early and uh, there's also a website called Incorporator. Neil McCrossan founded, I think it was in 98. And basically, you could incorporate a company online. So like a legal Zoom before legal Zoom. So there's been some evidence. It's not, you know, jumping up lately. And, but I think more, more so right now in terms of, you know, if you want to say the zeitgeist of what's kind of what's <laughs> happening in the legal tech space, it's easier than ever to start a company in general. But I think Australia is quite appealing because there's a broader, you know, you've got an English-speaking market. You yeah. can appeal to the common law jurisdictions. You can easily get to Singapore, Hong Kong, UK, and obviously a broader part of, of the US as well. And so I think it's a good place to start and test your technology and then get, you know, past the 
problem solution fit and then onto product market fit and then worry about your growth. So in terms of Alta itself, it really the market drew this organization together on, on, on its own, I think organically, because there was just such a, a need to have a unifying body for all of this, you know, groundswell of tech that was happening. LawPath had been quite successful as a, you know, LegalZoom's recently invested into LawPath as a online marketplace. So there is precedent of some of these, you know, companies that have grown really well, but more so now, you know, even with the associations bringing these companies together, there's been a trend there too. So, you know, off, off the back of uh, Alta, I think um, in New Zealand, there's Legal Tech NZ. Alta inspired, I think, Matthew Pennington in, in the UK to start the UK Legal Technology Association. So what's happening is all these different bodies are now coming together. And I think it's it's really a great show of this you know, collaboration and cross-pollinization of all these different mm-hmm. stakeholders. And that's where it's really exciting is that you have we have, you know, in some of our meetups, we've had professors doing research papers presenting to law students and technology companies. And you had law firms hosting meetups for women in legal technology and all, all these different people coming together, which hopefully for us will culminate in May on the 31st. We've got AltaCon, which will be the inaugural conference. And that will be quite unique as well. Like we'll have, instead of just startups showing, you know, their software, an actual demo, they'll be doing startup stories, which is basically the founders and the companies themselves doing TED Talks, but basically it could be about their fundraising, about the UX upgrade, about what it's like to run a company and have a family, whatever it is, they'll be vetted by the community. And then the, the, the ones that obviously make it, there'll be 20 on one stage. And the other stage will have a series of workshops. You know, we've got legal design, you know, Australian National Blockchain we're presenting for the first time and revealing some of their technology. So it's really an exciting time, I think, you know, for anyone to be in the legal tech industry, especially in Australia. And then got hackathons i think that are really again showing how much support there is for this tech because you can take that company all that idea sorry and then actually start a company the next day and be traction or incubating here at a law firm and that's really exciting too and i think annika is a great example they went to the global legal on and i was fortunate enough to you know mentor them and and now they've you know raised the government grant for two hundred thousand. So again, from you know, from just an idea, and they were actually inspired from an Alta demo day, right? They they uh, came oh, to I the legal. That. That's cool. Yeah, there was a I think Legal Geek from the UK was yeah. visiting, and we had um, a pitch competition, which they ended up actually becoming one of the finalists and got flown to the Legal Geek event too. But again, five law students, they said, "Hey, let's have a crack," and they actually came to one of the, the demo days and said, "All right, let's um, enter into the Global Legal Hackathon," and got to the finals, and, and away you go. So that's really, I think, what's exciting is that you know, there's really smart people obviously in the legal industry, mm-hmm. really ambitious and a lot of people seeing problems with the status quo and being no shortage of tools or network around them to help bring that to life. And that's what's really exciting for us. That's really cool. Yeah. And I keep my ears close to the ground when it comes to Australia and I'm, I'm an Alta member and I look forward to getting the updates. I'll see if I can get myself out to, is in Sydney, the conference, the AltaCon? The first one, uh, we, we argued over Sydney Melbourne, <laughs> but in the end, we found a great venue in, in Melbourne. It's in, in Melbourne. Uh, okay. Melbourne's a great yeah. city as well. So it's fine. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, that's really cool to hear. And I mean, I know there's a lot of technologies and technology companies that are coming out of Australia. And I think with other big hubs, Singapore being a main one close to Australia, I think that's becoming a very, very good breeding ground for some groundbreaking technologies that we'll be certainly hearing a lot more about over the next few years. I'm conscious of your time. So I want to wrap up and Obviously, a lot of things we touched on today were around blockchain, and I think some of it went a lot deeper than intended, as is the nature with blockchain. So anyone who didn't understand some of those terms, don't, don't worry. I would recommend you look up the Blockchain for Lawyers ebook. Where can they get that if they haven't already read it? 
Yeah, just legalit.com forward slash ebook, or they can you know jump onto legalit.com and, and be directed there. But yeah, it's still uh, <laughs> perfect. Yeah, and I I highly recommend that. And for anyone who's looking into you know what kind of practicalities there are with blockchain, there's a lot of information there. It goes back to the basics. It's put into very very simple terms, so you can at least have a conversational knowledge of what blockchain is, and hopefully have a a foundation to build upon. And for anybody else who's interested in Legler, you can check them out on legler.com. And Legler Aid, does that have a website? That'll be up very shortly. So we're launching uh, Legler ID, Legler Aid, and the blockchain this coming quarter. So there'll be a bunch of new collaterals. But for now, legler.com is the best place to find us. Perfect. Uh, and anyone who wants to find Stevie, you can look him up on LinkedIn, I'm sure. I recommend not giving out your email address, but I'm sure people can find you on LinkedIn. And I think you're quite active on Twitter as well, right? A little, yeah. I think what's interesting is LinkedIn's getting more and more <laughs> active in terms of mm-hmm. the, the feeds have improved and there's a lot of organic traction there still. Yeah. So these days, yeah, I end up, I think, on LinkedIn more so because it just seems to be, I don't want to say a more intellectual place, but it's just there's less, you know, people hiding behind the veneer of, you know, the Twitter account. So less noise, let's call it. More respect. Yeah. yeah, less noise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Stevie, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a great conversation and yeah, look forward to following up on what Legal has been up to and hopefully seeing you soon when I make my next visit to Australia. Yeah, I was going to say uh, thanks for having me on and, and let me know when you are heading this way and I can help show you around. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Fringe Legal Podcast. Before you go, I have a huge favor to ask you. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes. It'll take less than a minute and really helps others find the podcast. Meanwhile, you can find the show notes and resources from the episode on our website at podcast.fringelegal.com. That's podcast.fringelegal.com. See you next time.